Welcome to episode 357 of the Microsoft Cloud IT Pro Podcast, recorded live on October 16th, 2023. This is a show about Microsoft 365 and Azure from the perspective of IT pros and end users, where we discuss a topic or recent news and how it relates to you. Today, Ben and Scott run through the recently announced community gallery capability that has been added to the Azure Compute Gallery service. We also spend a little time talking about the table-level RBAC read access control for log analytics workspaces. Scott, you've had questions for me in the past. I have a question for you this morning. It kind of ties into... Tables are turning. Tables are turning. We were talking before we started recording, and you made a comment about you need to find more time to use your green egg in your Blackstone to grill. <laughs> and it tied into an article I saw this morning about a survey of workers that would take pay cuts for these top tier perks. And the biggest perks, I'm curious what you think about these. This survey found that most workers would take some kind of a pay cut for a four day work week consisting of four eight hour days, pay cut of 16 to 20%. So essentially, you're giving up a day's salary right? 20% for four days of work. Large number of workers would also take a pay cut for more vacation time. Same thing, 16, 20%. Doesn't say how much more vacation time. And then fully remote workers was obviously one of the top ones. 61% of people saying they would take a pay cut for remote work. I think those were the big three. More vacation, four-hour workday, remote work. I'm curious. Some people were like, I would... No, that wasn't a pay cut one. Curious. Your thoughts. Would you take a pay cut for any of those? Not that your employee could listen or should do it. For mortification, no. I think generally the thing to do is like when you're walking into a new position is know your worth and negotiate for it. Right. That's my thought. Even companies with very fixed policies, I think there's ways to come to agreement there. Like you might land in a band, say, with Two weeks of vacation, but really you need like you need three. And that's what you're used to and what you've had in the past. And I've run into that from some places, like having worked overseas where you just end up naturally with more in your vacation time. Another interesting one is I've worked at a bunch of law firms, and law firms tend to have pretty generous vacation policies, like three to four weeks. Interesting. For all employees, regardless of level. So I got used to that pretty early on in my career by doing some of that stuff, like working with law firms, where I was like, ooh. I just need three weeks. (laughs) And now at Microsoft, we do the DTO thing, discretionary time off, which is effectively unlimited time off. But you know, you have to get still get your manager's approval and things like that. So no, I, I don't think vacation time is one that would be worth taking it for. Remote work, yeah, absolutely. What'd you do? If you are if you think about it, if you're grinding away for say like half an hour to an hour of commute one way each day, that's going to be your eight hours right there anyway. <laughs> so, so just take the take the pay cut and do it. You were already putting the time in. It is what it is. And generally you do come out ahead in those deals. Just with the savings on mileage, wear and tear, gas, you might up some more things at home. You might find that you go absolutely crazy and end up with like microphones and fancy webcams. <laughs> And all the other stuff, but I, I think oh, it all plus. fills the gap pretty decently. The forty work week one is interesting. I would not want to do thirty two hours. I think for a twenty percent pay cut, I would rather do forty hours. Like we 
tend to do out standard in, in the United States, but just let me do my 40 hours in four days. In four days. And then I'm done. I can still do the same things and I'll arguably have the same, if not more output. So just let me let me do that and float through. Right. Especially I can see the four and 40, especially if you're combining that with the remote work, because if you're doing eight to five and you're just doing a quick lunch, that's already nine hours. Lunch. What's lunch? <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't get lunches anyway. So it, it, uh, yeah, it's the snacks sitting on my desk here. So I have mixed feelings about remote work in if that should be a pay cut. So I've always had this theory too. If you're going into the office, how much money is the company actually spending for you to be in the office? Because they're paying for the real estate, the electricity, the office supplies. There may be a lot of office supplies that you actually get if you're in the office in terms of chairs and desks and all of that. Should you actually be getting a pay cut if you're working remotely? Or should the company actually be investing some of that money back into you for you to provide some of that stuff as you're working remotely? Pick the company. (laughs) There's lots of companies even today with the whole rigmarole about return to office, RTO and all that stuff that are carrying large chunks of their books in commercial real estate. I think it's hard to make that flip. If you went to a company today and that company didn't have offices and they said, oh, but we pay 20% less, that smells a little fishy. But if they have a bunch of offices other places and they go, well, we let some people come into the office and they make this much and they let some people stay from home, like there's trade-offs there. I think that's a negotiation that you can potentially like rationalize your way through. As a remote work-from-home employee, I would take that trade I don't know that I could go back to an office. Let's put it that way. If somebody came and said, you have to go back to an office or take a 20% pay cut, I would take a 20% pay cut, I think. Take the pay cut and stay at home. I'm not going to sell my house and move someplace else and do all those things. And I also get what you're saying about long commutes. Like if, to your point, if you're driving an hour a day, spending X number of dollars on gas and oil changes and maintenance on your car or whatever those additional expenses are that do come with commuting, just even from a time perspective, there is something to be said for that too. But I'm with you. I don't know that I could ever go into an office. I don't, I don't know that people always think about it that way. <laughs> and you have to have, I, I think it helps. Like I've worked places where I've had to do the long commute thing. Like when I lived in outside Washington, D.C., when I had to go down into the district for customers, uh-huh. that was a two hour one way commute. There were some days where it was taking me three hours to go one way. Just because of traffic, timing for things. Like, I lived 35 miles outside of DC, which meant that for me to get down into the district, like, you can't drive on the hub lanes with a single driver in the morning. So, you had to find a potentially a different way to get in. You didn't want to drive in all the way to the district and have to deal with the traffic actually down there. So, I would drive my car to a park and ride. I would go from the park and ride to the train, and then I would take the train to where I need to be and maybe catch another bus, right? If there wasn't a train that got you within a walkable distance of the place that you were going. So it was a little ridiculous sometimes. And I would get home at eight at night. (laughs) What did I do? Yeah. So in cases like that, it's a totally worthwhile trade-off. And it's not a trade-off that everybody can make, but if you can make it, I think it's, yeah, it's worthwhile doing. Like It is a quality of life thing. It was interesting. There was just an interesting survey. And I'd say we'd post a link to it, but it was on the Jacksonville Business Journal, and it's a paid link. So 
if we posted a link, you can't really get to it anyways. <laughs> it was interesting just to see what some of those top things were that. And the four, I'm with you, the four day, eight hours a day surprised me. It was like, so people just want to work 32 hours instead of 40 hours. There are people that do that. So I've definitely worked in organizations and, and come across folks that do those kinds of things. Uh, we did a, I attended maybe last year and a half ago, a seminar that was put on by one of our more junior employees who decided to take that trade off, like totally negotiated down and said, me going to do 32 hours a week and that's it. And for a whole bunch of reasons, right? They're just like work-life balance, mental health. This is a better model for me kind of thing. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of that in there. Like everybody is situationally different. Like not everybody is built to do 40 hours of continuous context switching the entire time. So I can, I get that. Respect it. Know what you want, go for it and grab it if it's an option. That was my question for the day. Outside of and I also saw an article in there about mansions for sale in Jacksonville. But we don't need to talk about $25 million mansions in Jacksonville. <laughs> no, no, we don't. <laughs> so news. There's a few news things. We were just talking before this too. News feels like it's slowed down, but Ignite is now one month away, I think-ish. Give or take, yeah, yes. From when days. we're recording this, we're about, we're, we're about a month and a week away. So maybe just about five weeks. By the time people hear this, it'll be like two, two and a half weeks away. But Something like that, yeah. As a result, Microsoft has said, we announce news as it comes up now, and we've definitely seen a lot more news come out, but it is also very apparent that once you would get within a month of Ignite, the news kind of slows down, and Microsoft is definitely holding some stuff back to announce that Ignite in a month. So there's a few things that have trickled out that we figured we'd talk about today. So, do you want to take the first? Yeah. What do you want to start with? I don't know. You have a tab highlighted here in the browser. Do you want to start with the uh, the one you're on? This was an interesting one that I did not see. Let's start with sharing images using community galleries, like pictures, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of. I guess maybe if we consider a VHD a picture, do we consider VHDs pictures? A VHD is a picture of a virtual machine. They certainly tell a story. No. So in Azure, there has been this thing kicking around for a while now, which is the Azure Compute Gallery. So for a long time, you've been able to take a virtual machine in Azure, or even potentially like a virtual machine from your from another environment. Not the best idea, but typically we'd start with an Azure one just for the best experience. But you can take those images and you can customize them. So say it's like a Windows image and you want to sysprep that image, take it back to an out-of-the-box experience for running it through. Maybe you want to lay down your own bits on top of it just to give you an accelerator, like whatever it is. So you've had the ability for a long time to take those images and it started out as, oh, just grab a VHD, then you would create like an image your next VM from that VHD, that's a pain. And then they introduced this thing called a commute gallery. So effectively take your images and have your images with things like versioning associated with them. So, okay, great. I've got my golden image for Windows Server 2022. I've got my golden image for my Ubuntu 20.0.4 LTS version that I run in my environment, my RHEL thing, whatever it happens to be. Take those and then be able to like version them as you patch them, update your applications, all those kinds of things. Compute galleries have traditionally been private. So there's been like the Azure Marketplace. Hey, go out to the marketplace from an official publisher, be it Microsoft or one of the other 
vendors that's in the marketplace. It's been vetted by Microsoft and grab your VHDs from there or your images that you spin up. So a third party example would be something like Kemp. Like you want to spin up a load balancer from Kemp, you need like a Netscaler kind of thing. Great. You can go spin those up and those are vendor supported images from those companies. And now there's a new flavor that's kicking around, which within the community gallery, now you can, so within the compute gallery, Azure Compute Gallery, you can now have private galleries, which is traditionally what you've had. And you can also have a community gallery. And community galleries are interesting. So private galleries, as they've existed, you could do RBAC sharing within your tenant. You could also do a what was known as a direct shared gallery, potentially over to other users within your tenancy, other subscriptions, things like that. But generally, like your tenant, your Azure AD, Entra ID tenant, was a boundary for you for identity. So you couldn't really share those things publicly with other Azure users if you wanted to do that. Let's say you didn't, I don't know, you didn't meet the bar to go into the public marketplace. You just didn't even know it was a thing. You didn't want to deal with it. Like you could just spin up one of these community galleries now because what community galleries allow you to do is you can still do RBAC. So you can still do things like your share your images using role-based access control to a service principle, anything like that, people, groups, whatever it happens to be. But it's not locked down to a specific tenant. So a community gallery lets you break the boundary of a single tenant and get out there to more of the marketplace. Or you can just share things publicly. You can say, hey, I've got this community image and I want to push it out for everyone out there to be able to see and get hands-on with. So it's another mechanism or another way for publishers to share things potentially outside of the Azure marketplace. And that's got like pros and cons to it. I think as consumers of images, like we need to be pretty careful there because now there's maybe some additional vetting or things that you'll want to have in place. Because like marketplace images are certified. They go through a certification process both for Microsoft images and like Microsoft as the vendor who's publishing them or, you know, Kemp, Citrix, Netscale or all those kinds of things. Those all go through a certification process. They're all good, vetted, verified. Run them with your production workloads. You can do that with confidence. They'll be supported. There's a slew of first party, third party images, like all the, all that stuff just is there. But I think the biggest thing is they are supported <laughs> is probably the biggest thing uh, for marketplace images. Community images, there's a certain degree of trust that you're going to have with the publisher because like you or I could just go create a community gallery today and spin up an image and put it out there. So you're trusting that, A, we know what we're doing when we build that image. B, we are licensed to build and distribute that image. Like There could be software licensing or other things that come into play there. So this is really good for open source stuff, potentially, depending on the license associated with that. I don't know how well or how much it gets used for commercial stuff. 
It's also great for testing. Like I could see like a bunch of marketplace vendors potentially using this as a path to test their images and get them out there. There's no like billing model, anything like that. Community images are just free. So it really is like a I think like an Apple like test flight kind of thing. Like it is very test kind of thing. And then that support angle is a rough one, I think, in that images published through a community gallery are supported by the owner of the image. So who's the person who made the image? That is who is ultimately responsible for support on top of that thing. And Microsoft calls this out in the documentation. Okay, like this is potentially an area you could be interested in. But if you are a consumer of community gallery images, like you're not just a publisher, but you're also using them in your environment, like you should exercise a degree of caution there (laughs) because you really do have more work to do. Like you have to go verify the source. Again, there's no like certification, scanning, anything like that that happens on the way. Like there could be malware in these things. Like it's really on you to go and figure it out. And and there's mechanisms for folks to report nefarious images to Microsoft. Like all that stuff's in place, but it doesn't stop it from getting out there as quickly the way it might do in something like the regular Azure marketplace. Yeah, I was just looking through it. So if you go out to Azure and you browse for resources, you can go look up, and I, I think these are all community galleries, you can go look for the community images in Azure and just start browsing through them. So in community images right now, there are 4,600 images, and you're right, you don't know what any of them are. So one of them in here is from some guy named Pete, and the gallery is Pete Specialized, <laughs> and it's a Windows 11. And they have a URL for the publisher's website, which just goes to his public blog. It's Peter, and it's a software engineer's logbook. But to your point, it's what is actually in this Windows 11 specialized image? Because one thing I don't see on any of these is for all of these community images, they have a name, location, architecture, publisher, but there's no description on any of these. I don't even see a description <laughs> field where someone could go in and specify what this image actually is or what's contained in it or why I might want to use it. And I'm wondering if... It's a little rough. So if you go look at the way to deploy from a community image today, uh, lots of the examples, like they, they start right off with CLI and, and and rest even over the the portal deployment experience. But if if you dig down in and you go, okay, hey, let's look and see how you deploy this in the CLI, it's effectively do discovery, go out and list the images that are available, list the community images that are available. Funny enough, not a global resource, right? This is still a, a a regional service. So go out and list the community images that exist in this region. Show me all the community images in East US, in North Europe, like whatever it happens to be where you're deploying. Once you have that, the resource ID <laughs> to that image, so, so effectively the string, here's the gallery name and the GUI associated with that image, all that stuff, all the way down to the version, that becomes like what you pass into a VM create command to get things get things spun up and get them running. So yeah, that's a new thing that's out there. I'd, I'd be interested to see what the uptick on it is. And if you do see like MSRC reports on these over time of 
I, I could totally see a vendor coming in and doing something like a, a bad actor. Vendors maybe a bad choice of word. But a bad actor comes in and you know slams a bunch of images into sixty regions, or you've got to play like whack a mole trying to figure out like which region which bad actor is in and and where they've published images, things like that. There's more vetting for you to do as a customer here. Like you really do have to trust where these things come from. Because say you're using like a virtual machine scale set and we're doing like VMSS and we're scaling things out. The way you're going to do this is community images aren't just like a, it's like a Docker image and that it's got like a version associated with it. So yeah, like the Docker image, you might always do like Docker run, image name, and then a tag of latest. Like, always give me the latest one every time I run this. You can do the same kinds of things, and you'll see that if you dig into the resource URIs and the image definition URIs, in that you're actually pointing down to version, and version could just be like latest. It could be a tag, and the next VMSS instance that you bring up could potentially be running something different than the rest of it. There could have been something bad that happened along the way. Whatever. Your mileage may vary. Yes, I'm having fun going through here and just going, HP has some stuff out here. Do you feel overwhelmed by trying to manage your Office 365 environment? Are you facing unexpected issues that disrupt your company's productivity? Intelligent is here to help. Much like you take your car to the mechanic that has specialized knowledge on how to best keep your car running, Intelligent helps you with your Microsoft Cloud environment because that's their expertise. Intelligent keeps up with the latest updates in the Microsoft Cloud to help keep your business running smoothly and ahead of the curve. Whether you are a small organization with just a few users up to an organization of several thousand employees, they want to partner with you to implement and administer your Microsoft Cloud technology. Visit them at intelligent.com slash podcast. That's I-N-T-E-L-L-I-G-I-N-K dot com slash podcast for more information or to schedule a 30-minute call to get started with them today. Remember, Intelligent focuses on the Microsoft Cloud so you can focus on your business. So there's some good stuff. There's some an HP, HPE, Esmeral software documentation. So they have an image out there for their Esmeral. I don't even know what it is, but they have some images out there for that. It looks like it's primarily different vendors that have built their services, bundled them into a VM and pushed them out there. But then you do have these random ones like Pete's specialized VM image. Huh. It will be interesting to see the uptake too. And I feel like at some point in time, you need better sorting or maybe you don't necessarily go to the community image to find it, but if you have a specific vendor that you buy software from, that you're using it from, it gives them an option to put it out there and maybe trust them to point you to the right image. It's an interesting model of how do you figure out if there's something out there you want to use. I would almost want to see it where you could browse by publisher, and that's a little hard to do maybe today. Like It'd even be nice if you could just maybe browse by like publisher URI. So there's a couple extra fields. If you load one of these up, say you push a community image out there and, and you sort of see the metadata associated with it. So there's name of the resource, that makes sense. What location does it live in? What's its architecture? X86, X64, that kind of thing. But there's also a publisher URI and a legal agreement URL. So if you go look today, like there's a bunch of stuff, even that appears to be published by Microsoft, where like they've just skipped those fields. <laughs> <Like> publisher <laughs> URI is 
www.example.com kind of thing. If you go out and browse it, I don't know if you were noticed, but like all the by default, it's sorted by the public gallery name. Yep. So a bunch of stuff that shows up there is for actual like Microsoft services. There's a ton of AKS images that just fill up the first couple of screens, like different versions of Ubuntu running different versions of Container D, a FIPS compliant Container D, and then they have all like the permutations of that. So you see each image like published globally. So okay, there's one image, but rather than being in one one region, it's in sixty regions. Yes, <laughs> and just pushed all over the place to prevent egress charges from eating up too much and things like that. But there's tons of just variants of different things out there. Yeah, you'd have to go through the list and see. And I imagine most of this would be like very much like a test flightish kind of thing. Like a vendor comes to you and says, hey, here's the image definition URI so that you don't have to go searching for it this way. Yeah. Because even like the way it is today, like grouping by like the public gallery name and things like that, like it's a messy way to get in there and view things. 100%. So definitely has potential. I agree. It needs some work to be able to sort, filter, make it usable if you want to start in community images versus a vendor telling you, hey, we have all these community images out here. Here's our public gallery name or here's the link, like you said, directly to that image we have published for you. If you want, if you're up in the portal, so something you can do is in the upper right, if you're in the list view, go click on the list view and change over to the summary view. And then do something like summarize by location. We'll show you a map and the number of deployed images out at, out at each location. But you can then go in. There's a summary view for a gallery name. And you can just say, hey, show me like the top 10 publishers in the gallery, things like that. Hey, Scott, did you try clicking on the summary view by location and then actually clicking on a location? I did not click on a location. I mean, they came up, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're still working on that. They're broken. Some underlying API thing. Yeah, that was my first one. I'm like, oh, what's deployed in East US too? And I got an error. So it's not just me. <laughs> That's a, it's interesting. Maybe we should create a podcast gallery, Scott, of all of our VMs of nothing because I don't have that many customized ones. I've done a few for like DevBox and AVD where I've done some gold images, but nothing that I don't. Know that I'm pushing any public galleries anytime soon. I'd be super scared to publish most stuff. Like I think you'd have to be a little bit of illegal eagle to get some of that out there, right? Like I would not want to publish a Windows 11 image. Let me put it that way for Pete's special image gallery over there. That doesn't seem <laughs> something could be off there. Well, but you'd still have to license it, right? So it's not on you to necessarily license the OS, or from a legally standpoint in terms of somebody doing something on your image and it somehow coming back on you. You just don't know. So in my mind, let's put it this way, like given the choice between going and getting like an Ubuntu image from the marketplace, Azure marketplace, okay, that, that certified, scanned, publicly verifiable thing versus a community gallery, I'm either going to go to the marketplace or I'm going to build my own. That's it. I'm not going to go to the community gallery and deal with deal with that kind of thing, especially for a base image. In my head, it would be like, "Ooh, base images, marketplace, great, we can get those." And then, if whatever you need in a base image isn't there in a base image, like, what's my overhead to add it and maintain it? I bet that's 
going to be like right in line, if not lower, than dealing with something from a community gallery. Yeah, and then. I, I would think a lot of the community gallery over time turns into probably what it looks like the AKS team is doing, where there are a bunch of like test images and variants and things like that that you can go out and run with. So if I'm Citrix and I'm publishing Netscalers out, I might have my marketplace images for Netscalers, and then maybe I have an entire test bed set of images that I can let customers get on like early days for a new release to go vet something. Yeah, I think that's where I'd see a lot of benefits to it. Because looking through it, I did see a couple. Let's see if these come back up. Yeah, there's some here that you have nightly builds, net service. Who are these by? Edgeless Systems has something out there. I don't know what they do. Any cloud, always encrypted, open source solutions for confidential computing. But if you go look for like nightly, you will see some of these images where there's nightly builds of stuff or dev builds or beta builds. And I agree with you there where if you have some of those production workloads and you do want to have give customers the option to go test out a nightly build or a lab build or something like that, this could be a good place for it. But again, I think then you're coming through the vendor's website. You're not necessarily out here browsing for edgeless systems nightly builds because <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. So fascinating, more services, see where it goes. But with that, I have meetings coming up, Scott. We have some more topics. Yeah, we have more topics, but we might have to punt those for next week unless you had another quick one you wanted to talk through. So we're talking galleries and our back and sharing and things like that. So one that crossed my radar, we've talked a bunch about log analytics and Kusto and things like that in the past. Table level RBAC in Kusto clusters. Have you seen this one out there and kicking about? You sent this one to me a few weeks ago because we were talking about it from a Sentinel deployment perspective of what if I want to have a log analytics workspace and layer Sentinel on it, but I don't necessarily want everybody to have access to everything in my log analytics where maybe those users using Sentinel doing it for those SIM workloads need access to the entire log analytics workspace, but my app developers only need access to certain data in there, like the app services they're working on, where they're using it for App Insights or something like that. And it was, how do you secure your logs if you're using a single instance of log analytics for these different workloads? And you sent this to me, when we were talking about that, because up and before I had not seen this one. Yeah, so this is a capability that is in preview as far as being able to use like Azure RBAC in this manner. Yep. TLDR is you end up with a log analytics workspace where you're going to create some some new roles around that log analytics workspace. So you're going to have a new role at the workspace level, like all up, here's my deployed resource and all the tables within it. And what that role does is a kind of limited permission role that has access to read workspace details. And it has the ability to run a query 
but it does not have the ability to read any data from any tables in there. So that kind of gives you the ability to go in and see, hey, what's out there? But then if you actually want to run against it, you need additional permissions to get at it. And then you have a table level role which effectively becomes a reader role, and those are just scoped down at the table level to let folks in on that side. So in combination, like when you have both the roles and they both line up the right way, then you get this magical superset where not only can you see the table and you have the ability to run queries, but now you have the additional grant and additional permission to be able to execute a query. I guess execute a query, read data out of the table. Yeah, It's weird because the permission is like workspaces slash query slash read. And it's really, it should be like workspaces slash query slash execute and read or (laughs) whatever it happens to be, something like that. But because these are are back roles, you can do things like action, have a not action. So you could say like for this user, they're not allowed to do this thing on this table, anything like that up and down. So it's pretty familiar once you know what the roles are that are out there. So that custom role that you created at the top and then the reader role for each table, it's just going ahead and applying RBAC at that point to get it out there. So I've been having to play around with it. Like it's pretty seamless. Like, I mean, it's, it really does just bring your scope for RBAC down to a lower level, down to that table level within a log analytics resource. So there still might be some weird things in there. Like you mentioned, like Sentinel is one of those things that really should have access to all the tables that are out there. So you need to think your way through that one and what that looks like and maybe even like where users execute queries from. Do they execute them from Sentinel, which is running on, say, like a managed identity, and it has access to everything? Or do you give them access to the log analytics workspace where then they're coming in as their user principal and all that kind of stuff to get to where they need to be? And it also looks like you talked about permissions, but it also has a couple different access control modes. Going back to kind of the example that I had talked about where you can set workspace permissions where it doesn't allow granular RBAC and you essentially have access to everything, but they also have a user or a user resource or workspace permissions where it's not even going and it looks like and setting it at the table. But if you use that control mode, you can do granular RBAC granted based on the resource they can view versus just a let's go set it on this table or this table and going down that route. This will be the new mode going forward. I, I like My sense is once this GA is that the old way of table level access, and the reason I say it's probably going to go away is because they started calling it the legacy method <laughs> of setting table level redex. That's usually a good hint. That's my hint that... At some point, like when this capability GAs, they'll get away from the old way of doing it. Because the old way of doing it, it was still Azure identity driven, but you were doing a ton with custom roles at the end in, in that one. And you really had to get like super granular in your definitions of those roles to get them to where they needed to be and really get them like dialed in. So this is potentially a little bit easier. There, there might be trade-offs and granularity or things like that. Like we'll see if they even introduce like additional additional levels in there. Do you get to the point where there is say like a query versus a read versus an update kind of RBAC thing that you can push in at a table level? You know, who knows? We'll see if it gets there. Got it. So that table level, I'm reading this article more. The 
access control mode is that differentiation has been around for a couple of years now, since 2019. It's just the table level RBAC stuff that's in preview. That's brand new. I think it's confusing though, because technically, like when I go look at the old stuff, the old table level access was also RBAC. Like it was all based on, on it was still got it. Azure roles and application of those roles to an identity. Those kinds of things. So I think this is bringing more clarity to what are the permissions within those roles and potentially like rationalizing, make that management a little bit easier. Yeah, I found it. This is the one disadvantage to shared tab, Scott. I can't see where you are. The set table level read access versus the legacy set table read access in this article. Huh. It's a confusing one, but kicking out there in preview, it's been in preview for I think like a month or two now. Like a little hot minute, so hopefully not too much longer. And then that one GAs. Sounds good. I need to go look at this one some more too. This one's on my list, Scott. My never ending list. This one makes it. There, there we go. Add it to the list. All right. Success. Sounds good. Well, I have a meeting now in three minutes. So with that, we will wrap it up on this Monday morning and get to our work week, a meeting, and then we have to go renew some Azure certs because they're expiring. Yep, sounds like a plan. All right. (laughs) Well, thanks, Scott. Enjoy the rest of your day, week, and I'm sure we will talk to you a little later this week. All right, thanks, Ben. Yep, bye-bye. If you enjoyed the podcast, go leave us a five-star rating in iTunes. It helps to get the word out so more IT pros can learn about Office 365 and Azure. If you have any questions you want us to address on the show or feedback about the show, feel free to reach out via our website, Twitter, or Facebook. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.